Thank you, Mark. My name is uh, Matt Hardy. I'm one of the elders here at Cross Point Coast. And it's a privilege to be here today. It's a privilege to speak to you, uh, to call so many of you friends. Um, it's a privilege to serve in a church that values its elders and um, lets us come up here and, and give a sermon that <laughs> maybe as we're still learning how to give a good sermon. So I appreciate that. And, um, and I'm humbled every time I'm asked. We're still in the, the series titled Forever King. Jeremiah kicked it off uh, last week with the story of Adam and Eve coming out of our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Jeremiah hopefully pointed us to the truth uh, last week that the fall was a result of Adam and Eve not trusting in the word of God. We saw through them that when we establish our own definition of right and good based on our own desires, we're establishing our own rule and rejecting God's rule. This morning, we're going to be looking at a very large section of Scripture. It's actually the first uh, six books of the Bible. Yes. So we're going to change the way we do things a little bit. We're not going to exegete six books of the Bible, or we'd have to get another family to light another candle, I think. Um, so we're going to be looking at kind of the narrative, the, the bigger story that, that we're looking at. And, and a piece of that is what Jeremiah talked about last week, which is the, from Graham's Goldworthy, the people of God in God's place under God's rule. So keep that in mind as, as we progress uh, quickly through the first six books of the Bible together. So it may seem odd uh, that we did pick something like this for an Advent, right? I mean, usually it's a New, New Testament story. We're talking about Christ's coming. Um, but I think this fits very well. It, it points us to a hope, right? And that's what Advent is. It, it's a hope. We have a hope of things to come, and our hope is based on things that have already happened. And I think today in the story, uh, as we look through, that's what we'll see, is we'll see a reason for us to have hope. And I pray that's what we find, is, is Christ more beautiful this Christmas out of an appreciation of what he's rescued us from and what he's rescuing us to. Join me in prayer. God, I pray that you would show us yourself as a reason for hope, that you would point us away from ourselves, Lord, that we would find you beautiful, that we would find our, our righteousness, our effort that we could work up to be lacking. I pray that you would help us submit ourselves to your rule, Lord, and, and find you as worthy, worthy of our lives, worthy of our submission, or that you would help us trust in you today. Pray all these things in your name and by your power. Amen. So we're actually going to start at the end and then go back to the beginning. Uh, we're going to look at Joshua 24, 14 through 18. There's going to be a lot of verses today. Like I said, we're going through a big section. Really encourage you to pick up a Bible. Uh, their verses actually aren't going to be on the screen. Um, so grab a Bible. If you have someone sitting next to you, a child, help them flip through the pages. We'll be going in order so after we get through this first one, um, so we should be able to keep up. So we're in Joshua 24, 14 through 18. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all in the way as though we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people, the Amorites, who lived in this land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So as we go back to the beginning again, I, I encourage you to keep in mind that, uh, that that definition of the kingdom of God is, is 
God's people in God's place under God's rule, because we're going to look at many stories today, and, and most of them touch on that theme. So if we go back to the beginning, back to Genesis 1, and we see creation, we see that in perfect working order, right? People, place, and rule. Everything's perfect. Everything's new. Nothing's corrupted. We see a, an intimate proximity to God, walking with God in the cool of the day. There's no fear. There's no trembling. There's just perfect harmony, walking with God. There is no separation at this point. But quickly, in, in chapter 3, we see separation. We see sin come in. We see Adam and Eve saying, on my own, I can live. I can make my own choices. And they do. And the intimacy is broken immediately. The intimacy with God, there's, there's separation that occurs. They can no longer be in their own presence, for their own good even. God is showing mercy in the fact that he's placing them outside of the garden for their own good. And he places a cherubim at the eastern gate to keep them out. And then we go quickly into Genesis 6. And we see a flood. We see a corruption on the earth. Sin left to its own devices has run rampant. Right? The whole place is corrupted. And for the people of God, it's down to one family. Noah and his family are the people of God now on the earth. Everything else is corrupted. We see the wages of sin played out on the rest of humanity at that point. The wages of sin is death. And the rest of humanity besides Noah's family suffers that curse. We see in six, chapter 6, verse 6, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It's pretty serious. So God enacts a sentence of death and saves his people and resets the earth. He has his people in his place under his rule again. But it doesn't last long, as we see over and over again in the Bible. You see Genesis 11, you see the Tower of Babel. These are descendants of Noah. These are people striving to rule themselves. We see in 11 verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They had already rejected God's rule and wanted to rule themselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be their own people. They didn't want to be the people of God. In 12, we see the call of Abram. God says, go from your, your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here, here we begin to see God claiming a people, right? A unique people with a promise that he's going to continue to bless them for generations. It's given directly to Abram. And what is Abram's response when he's told later he's going to have descendants? What does he do? He laughs. He laughs at God and says, I, I don't know if you know, but I don't even have a child. And I'm 100 and my wife's 90. So um, that's, that's the response of Abram. But he does. He does have a child, and his child uh, is Isaac. And that's the fulfillment of the promise. So in spite of Abram's doubt, uh, God delivers. God fulfills in spite of Abram's failings. And that's what we'll see. Uh, the people fail, and God is faithful. In Genesis, all the way uh, forward now to Genesis 26, 3 through 5. 
Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abram, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and we will give and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So we see the promises continue. God is God is faithful, and He's He's following the people through the generations. He's keeping His commitment. He's keeping His covenant. We see it make it with Isaac. In 27, we see Isaac in his old age, and we see him bless Jacob by mistake. Jacob, who, who tricked him and cheated his brother. And we see God's faithfulness even through that. And again, we're flying through these things. Each one of these could be a sermon in its own, in its own right. Um, we see Jacob become Israel. In the next few chapters, we read the stories of, of Jacob. We see his wives, his children, his prosperity. We see his relationship with his brother Esau. Then in the second half of chapter 32, we see a turning point. We see him wrestle. In 32:26, we see uh, we see something significant here. Genesis 32:26. Then he said, "Let me go." For the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until, unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So his name got changed from one that means he cheats to one that means God contends or God wars. Right? He was... He was confessing a name of actually of a sin, right? Uh, and he was given a new name that God contends. And we see the lineage of Israel. We see God's faithfulness continue through Jacob. We see it all the way until we get to Joseph. We see Joseph in that line of Abram and Isaac and Israel. We see God claiming a people. We see his promise. We see his fulfillment. And we, we begin to see in Joseph the events take place that will secure a place, a land that was promised to his great-grandfather Abram. In Genesis 37, Joseph ends up in Egypt through a series of sovereign events. We see him end up in a position of rule in Egypt, only next to the Pharaoh. And by the end of Genesis, we see Joseph resettle his entire family into Egypt and continue to thrive. In his old age, Israel blesses each of the children to varying degrees. And in chapter 49, and then he dies. By the end of the next chapter, we see an account of the rest of Joseph's life. And then he dies. So that's a really long intro to get to where we're talking about today with, with Moses. And there's already been a theme of faithfulness, already been a theme of God keeping his promises. God laid claim to a people, to a lineage. We can track it back through the generations. So we're going to jump into Exodus and see God exercise his rule for the sake of his people and see God lay the groundwork for the restoration into his presence. In Exodus 2, we see Moses. He was born among the people, people of God, but under a foreign ruler of Pharaoh. Like Joseph, he also ends up in a position of uh, respect among the Egyptian royalty, and it doesn't last very long. We see uh, from sin and fear, Moses leaves his adopted family and flees. Turn to Exodus 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian being a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And he went out the next day. Behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? 
He answered, who made you a, a prince to judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. So he sins, and then he runs and hides. Sounds a lot like Adam and Eve. Sin and guilt and shame and hiding, running. Moses runs off uh, to Midian. He finds a wife, has a child, settles down, living the Egyptian dream. Life is good. And then quickly in Exodus 2, 23, we see this. We see God hears Israel's groanings and, and he remembers. He remembers his covenant to his people. His people are in bondage. His people are in slavery. And it's an interesting word, remembers. Did God forget? No, God didn't forget them. He knew them. It wasn't the first time he'd heard their groanings. Um, if we learn anything, there are people who groan a lot. And God's timing is his own timing. Uh, he did not forget the covenant. He was acting in his timing. And God sends Moses back. He sends Moses back to Egypt to claim his people and to claim them from a false ruler. We see what it is God remembered exactly in, in chapter 6, verse 2 of Exodus God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abram, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name is the Lord. I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will, re I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abram and Isaac and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So what we see there again, we see God's rule, God's people, God's place. God's making covenant again. He's making promises and keeping promises. When you see him do exactly what he said he's going to do, he comes out with great acts of judgment. In a series of plagues, each one worse than the next, these plagues serve a couple purposes. They demonstrate God's absolute rule of the Egyptians, the people of Israel, and the world. God's showing that he's in charge. Right? The Egyptians have magicians, and they, they try to keep up, but they can't. God is demonstrating his control. They also reveal who this Lord is, this Yahweh is, the people of Israel. They've been in Egypt for a long time, and they might not know him for all he, that he is, and he is showing, he is showing his rule. He is showing his power. And these plagues, these these um, acts of judgment, these demonstrations of who God is, they culminate in Exodus eleven. So we see Exodus eleven. We see a final plague threaten. Chapter eleven, verse four. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as has there never been, nor ever will be again. That's a great act of judgment. I couldn't imagine the cry that night. Every firstborn. Every firstborn. Unimaginable. But we see, even in that, mercy. Uh, mercy for God's people. If we look at, continue on to seven, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. 
either man or beast, that you may know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. See, God is setting apart a people. He is claiming a people out of the midst and sparing them from judgment. He is making known to Egypt and to the world that these people belong to him. So we see a Passover in chapter 12. We see uh, the directions there of, of blood, right? Of the blood of a perfect spotless lamb. We see very uh, detailed instructions on how to prepare the lamb, what kind of lamb it is, what to do with the meat, how to eat it, how to care for it. It is, it is detailed instructions of, of what it takes to be passed over. It takes the blood of a spotless lamb brushed over the door. It was required for the redemption of, of, of the people of Israel. And God keeps his promise and he, and he destroys every firstborn and he spares everyone who had the blood on the door. And we see God's people freed. They're freed from a false rule of Pharaoh. God's people are under his rule again. They are out of, out of the city and, and marching out, given, given the gold, given the jewels, given everything they need to, to go on their way. And you think that's the beginning of a, of a happy story and they're, just, they're out now and they're free and they can settle down and life is good, but it's the beginning of a story that's full of miracles. We see uh, the Red Sea parted. We see meat rain from the sky with, with bread. We see water come from rocks. We see all these things. We see enemies uh, just laid down that would have been impossible without God. And we see a people who continue to grumble. They continue to complain. They continue to, to want more and even cry back to go back to Egypt. Um, we find a, a, a people who are dissatisfied with what God has given them, even in their freedom. We see these people going through the desert, making progress, and, and they're going towards Mount Sinai, and that's where we find them in, in chapter 19. They're at Mount Sinai. And what we see on Mount Sinai is, is God, again, renewing covenant with these people. He's telling them to obey the rules. And if they do, and if they do, they will be his treasured possession. We see in 19.8, says this, and all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. If only that was true, right? They haven't demonstrated any of that ability so far. And as we look ahead, they don't demonstrate that ability either. And yet they were quick to promise the Lord uh, in his presence that they will do it. And they do this at at the foot of Mount Sinai. In Mount Sinai, God's presence was was there, and there was fire, and there was smoke, and there was lightning, and there was shaking, and it was scary. Right? This this wasn't the Garden of Eden anymore. This wasn't God walking with man in the cool of the morning, having a chat. This was God's presence. And it was scary, and the people were afraid. And they said, yeah, you, you go up there, Moses, and we'll stay down here, and we'll make sure there's a buffer down here because we don't want to get anywhere near that. Right? It, it, was, it was changed because of sin, because of that separation that was induced. Uh, it was different now. And God's rule was handed down through Moses to the people, and God is showing the way of his kingdom He's showing what it is to live in the kingdom of God. And in chapter 24, verse 3, Moses comes down and he talks to the people. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice again and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Right? And then Moses goes back up the mountain again. And he goes up for 40 days. 
And God lays out a very detailed plan. And this plan is a way for sinful man to approach God through priests, through sacrifices, through the tabernacle, right? And then God himself gives him commandments, and Moses heads back down the mountain to a people who have just recently sworn twice they were going to do what they were asked to do, that they would do anything God asked them to do. So we turn to Exodus chapter 32. And if you, if you see the title of the chapter, then you already know what happens. These people sitting at the foot of the mountain of Mount Sinai, seeing God, having twice sworn that they will do what they're supposed to do, didn't want to wait on Moses to come back down. Thought maybe something had happened, thought they should make a new God. So they, have, so they make a new God, and they have a new rule, and they, they no longer are God's people. They want to be under this idol that they've produced. They are satisfied with so much less. And Moses comes down and is infuriated. God is not pleased. And God reminds them quickly, as does Moses, that they are still under his rule. And he is holy, and he demands to be worshipped, and he's a jealous God. We see, in, we see some of that in Exodus 30, 33, when it's the command to leave Sinai. And God says to Moses, go, and I'm not coming with you, because I may destroy you. Right? So you go ahead, I'll catch up later. I may actually destroy every one of you if I went with you right now. And Moses intercedes. Moses understood something unique uh, about what it was to have the presence of God. And he knew what it would mean to not have the presence of God. He had a, he had a special understanding of, of the presence. He was the one. He was the emissary. He was the mediator who went up and talked to God. And he begs God. And, and God, God says, yes. God says, yes, I will go with you. And then, and then Moses makes another request. He says, let me see your glory. Right, in, in 33, verse 20, he says, let me see your glory. And, and God says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Right? Things have changed. Things have changed since the garden. Sin has broken it. Man cannot see me and live. But Moses, even, even still, says, show me something. And God says, okay. And he, and he puts Moses in a, in a cleft of a rock, and he shields him with his hand until he walks by. And then he removes his hand and he, and he gets to see the, the kind of the backside of God as he walks by. Moses understood what it was to be in the presence of God and, and what it meant. We see him later in, in 34, this shining face of Moses. You know, it changes him when he sees, when he sees God. So that takes us to, to Leviticus. And I know this can be a, a, one of the hard books when those year-long Bible studies and it's just, just February, just January, and you get into Leviticus and Numbers and it, you kind of think maybe I should switch plans, right? Maybe some of, throw in some of those Psalms and uh, Proverbs and New Testament stuff, right? We see, we see this book with just this immense amount of detail down down to to the tassel and the color and the thread and the what shape it is and where it points we see leviticus and leviticus is there because because of what i've been describing because we have a sin problem right because we can't come into the presence of god right uh, michael morales a, a theologian had this to say about the sin problem and how it's addressed in leviticus he said, the goal for Israel is fellowship and communion with God. Because Yahweh God is holy and the source of life, however, the requirement for communion with God is utter and complete consecration. Yet before consecration to God can become a possibility, Israel's sin must be dealt with, expiated. Only a cleansed humanity may belong to Yahweh. The way to God, then, is a bloody knife and a burning altar. Sacrifice 
It is the way that Yahweh has opened for humanity to dwell in his presence. And that's what we see in Leviticus. We see the system of sacrifices in the tabernacle. We see a place for God to come down and sit in the Holy of Holies. And again, we see the Holy of Holies is different than the garden. It's more like Sinai than, than the garden. It's still a place of, of danger. It's a place of fear. It's a place entered into once a year with, with a lot of reverence and fear. We see, like the garden, the cherubim on the curtain guarding the entrance into God's holy place, separating, um, separating man from God. We see these exacting commands and how offerings are to be made, how the priests are to be consecrated, how God is to be approached. In chapter 9, we see, we see Aaron make a successful offering. I can remember not long ago how nervous I was the first time I got up here and preached. I can't imagine how nervous Aaron was the first time he walked in and did the offering. And you see this list of commands. Did you keep everything? Did you obey every rule? Did was your tassel right? Was the bell right? Was the signet right? Was, was everything right? And he keeps saying over and over again in nine, it says, and he did as was commanded, and he did as was commanded, and he did as was commanded. And he, and, and he does as was commanded. And then we go to chapter 10, and we see Nadab and Abihu. And the first thing we see is that these sons of Aaron's took a censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire, strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Right? Everything Aaron did was commanded. Nadab and Abihu come in and we don't know what they did, but it wasn't commanded. They thought they could do something on their own. Turns out they couldn't. And they were struck down immediately. Um, this was a serious place. This was the dwelling place of a holy God. And these were, these were sinful men stepping in through means of consecration. And then we see, as Leviticus continues, there's a, the next uh, four or five chapters are all on clean and unclean, purification, consecration, laws about leprosy. We see laws for cleansing lepers, laws for cleansing houses, We see laws about bodily discharges, all kinds of stuff. What's happened, remember, is also that these are corpses now in the Holy of Holies. These are unclean things. You're not supposed to be around the dead, touch the dead, be in the presence of the dead without being cleaned. So we go into all these laws about cleanliness, and it's easy to skip, but we get to 16, and the Day of Atonement is the same day that Nadab and Abihu died. And we see these detailed instructions, again, every step along the way, what it means to walk into the Holy of Holies, the inner chamber, the presence of the Holy God. Right? It it was a serious thing. It was the equivalent of walking up Mount Sinai. Right? It was the equivalent of walking back into the the gate, past the cherubim, into, into the Garden of Eden once again. To see God, right? There was even a, a directional. The, the the door on the tabernacle would have been on the east side, and they would have been walking westward, just like walking back into the garden. They would have been walking past the cherubim, just like walking back into the garden. There's a, it's very interesting if you look at the symbolism between the tabernacle and the garden and so many other pieces. Uh, it's a, a very interesting study in its own. So we see this, and we see this, uh, this walking back in, and, and it's, it's a requirement of consecration, and consecration is done with blood. And there's a lot of blood. When you read this, when you read Leviticus, and you read about the offering, and you read about what was required, and how much blood, how much blood would have been all over this tabernacle, thrown all over the place, Offerings here, offerings there, bulls, you know, slitting a bull's throat is going to produce a lot of blood. And this place was covered in blood, and that's what was required. 
right? When Michael Morales said the way in is a, is a bloody knife and a burning altar. That's the way back. In 17, we see what it is to be holy. We see the holiness of God laid out. We see in the rest of the chapter, we see what it means to be holy. The Lord is holy. You shall be holy. Uh, the punishments for breaking rules. We see all these rules laid out for living together as a people of God under the rule of God. And Moses continues to preach over and over that Israel is indeed God's people under God's rule in God's presence. And the Israelite people continue to reject it, continue to wonder, continue to seek their own rule, their own, their own way. So we're going to skip ahead to Numbers, Numbers 14. Twenty-six through thirty-one. They've been in in the desert, wandering. They've been continuing to grumble. They've been continuing to to not do as they had promised. And in twenty-six, fourteen twenty-six, it reads as this: And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people. Of Israel, which they grumble against me, say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from twenty years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Right? These, these people have rejected God and God has had enough. He's still going to keep his promise. He says he's going to bring his people in, but this generation is not going to come in. God keeps his promises. One of his promises earlier was a promise of judgment. He says, if you continue in this way, there will be judgment. God keeps his promises of a blessing and he keeps his promises of judgment. And his promise of judgment was carried out here. This generation that was cursed had access to God like none before. They had a direct line of communication with God right through Moses. God was leading them. God was there. God was providing in every way possible. They wanted meat. He gave them meat. They wanted bread. He gave them bread. They wanted water. He gave them water. He gave them everything that they needed, and still they grumbled. And he tells them that they're not going to come in. In the rest of Numbers and Deuteronomy, we see God's judgment carried out. We see the people of God walk around for 40 years. We see battles. We see the rule of God laid out and what it should look like to live among the kingdom of God. And people are dying and children are being born. There's a lot of people wandering around the desert. So we're going to take another big jump and we're going to skip ahead to Deuteronomy 31. So Moses is 120 years old, and he's ready to pass the leadership to Joshua. Moses has been told that he also will not enter the promised land because of his own sin. And his response is an interesting one. Moses reads the law to his people, and he stands up and he offers praise to God, and he sings God's praises, even after being told he won't be entering the promised land. He still understands who God is. And then he and then he lays his hand on Joshua, and then he dies. We see in Deuteronomy 34.10, we see an obituary of Moses. It says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders and the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to, the, and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all his great deeds and terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. And yet we find his rescue was incomplete, right? He could not save the people from, himself, from themselves. And he could not even save himself from his own death, right? So we finished the Pentateuch, and now we're looking at Joshua. God's commissioned Joshua in chapter 1, and he assumes command. 
They're near the promised land. They need to cross a river. So we look into Joshua chapter 1. And Joshua has laid out his command. And we see in chapter 16, the people respond. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Right? That's true. Just about as well as they obey Moses, they obey him. They still have, they still have wonderings. They still have rumblings. Um, there's still issues with the people. But they were still quick to swear it, weren't they? Right? There were people who, as we saw it earlier, have a, have a desire to, to proclaim a righteousness that they might not have. They have a, a desire to, to work up a righteousness in themselves. So Joshua was a very faithful leader, and he was charged with finishing what Moses started. He's going to take God's people into God's place and have them under God's rule. We see them taking uh, city after city, conquest after conquest. Uh, Joshua 12 has an extensive list of all the kings defeated by Moses and and by Joshua, and it's it's a large list. In the second half of people, we see, in the second half of Joshua, we see the people of God realizing the promise of God. They are, they are in the promised land. They are settling into the promised land. And if we see Joshua 21.43, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers many generations ago, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not, not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. Right? Who, who has been faithful? Has it been the Israelites? No. Has it even been Moses or, or Joshua all the time? No, I'm sure not. It's been God through the failings, through the trials, through the grumblings, through, the, through, through just the disobedience. It's been God who has been faithful to keep his promise from beginning to end. God made a promise many generations ago to these people that he would bring them into a land, that he would secure a promised land for them, a land of milk and honey, and that's what he does. And we see it in, in Joshua 24. We see again a covenant renewal, Right? We see again a, a, a renewal of promise. This brings us all the way to where we started. We've come from the garden through Egypt, through the desert, to the promised land. And we see a people who've been chosen by God, making promises we know that they can't keep. And, and, and at this point, I think Joshua knows that they can't keep it. He's a little, a little wiser. Right? He's, he's been there, done that, seen that, knows these people have walked around the desert with them for a long time and seen what they've been about. So Joshua is smarter now, and he, and he makes them swear to it. He says, Let, let's write it on this big stone. You say you swear to up, uphold what God will do, then let's write it down. So they carve it into a big stone, and they put the stone in the middle of town, and they say, this will be our witness against us. I said, Joshua, Joshua knows what's going to happen, right? He knows that they're not going to be able to keep it. Joshua knew these people, and he, and he knew God. We look ahead, we go over to Judges, Judges chapter 2. You can see it pretty quick what happens. Just look at the section headers in, in section 2, or in chapter 2. Israel's disobedience. We see the death of Joshua. We see Israel's unfaithfulness, right? What happened is what we thought would happen, right? And then we see the Lord raise up judges. It isn't necessarily a good thing for Israel. If you've read the book of Judges, you know it's a, it's a vicious cycle of, of judgment, of, of, of the people crying out, of uh, God, God giving the people what they ask for. And, and in a lot of ways, it isn't good for them. Right? So that's where we come up to. And, and so the question is, right, so what? Right? 
This is a people. This is a story. This is a long time ago about Israel. Uh, uh, so what? I mean, it's easy to see that they made the same mistakes over and over again. They were, they were foolish people. I remember uh, years ago when Tracy and I were reading uh, the Bible together for one of the first times, and uh, she came and said to me, these people are dumb. <laughs> they just did it again and, and, and again and, and again. They keep doing the same thing over and over again. How, how easy is it for us to say, well, if, if God was outside and he led us around by a pillar of fire, if he had parted a sea for us, then, then you know, I wouldn't have done that. Those, how, how could they be like that? Here's the truth, though. If, if we can't see the need for this story, it's because we suffer from the same thing as Israel does, right? We suffer from a failure to see God for who he is. We suffer from a brokenness from the fall, right? In Genesis 3, just like Jeremiah said last week in Genesis 3, we, we would establish our own definition of right and good by our own desire, we would establish our own rule by the rejection of God's rule. We will say on our own, we can live. That's the result of the fall. That's where we live now. And we look at Moses and Joshua and the people of Israel, and we see that we will attempt to establish a righteousness from among ourselves by our will and a commitment to God right? over and over again. We will do it. We will listen. We will do what God says. We will obey. We are establishing God's rule by our own faithfulness, right? How would that have worked for Israel if God's faithfulness was based on their obedience? It would have been over very early. It would have been a much shorter story, right? As soon as the first disobedience happened, it would end the covenant. It was over and over again. They, they break the store, they break, they break covenant, they break the promise. They continue to grumble, God is faithful, God renews covenant. They break covenant, God renews covenant. They break covenant, right? Over and over again. And it's easy for us to read the story and and not want to be Israel. We don't think we're Israel. We don't want to be the bad guy in the story. We don't want to be the dumb ones, right? (laughs) Clearly, we can see what they can't. We can see Israel. We don't want to be that. We'd rather be Moses or Joshua even, you know, but it's just not the truth. <laughs> we, we are Israel in so many ways. We, we make the same mistakes over and over again. I know I am Israel. I, I, I confessed to Tracy this morning that I had a restless night last night. I was so concerned about preaching and doing a good job on a sermon about self-righteousness. So... <laughs> It seems like a very thing, Israel thing to do as, as we look at what they've done, right? But there's a, there's a reason that we have hope, and there's a few things that are made clear in the Pentateuch, right? And, and maybe this may not sound like our hope yet, but, but it will. The, the penalty for our sin is death, right? That's, that's made clear. From the very beginning, from the first sin, the penalty is death. God lays it out clearly, and we see it. God is faithful in that promise. The requirement for atonement is blood, laid out all over the Pentateuch, all over the sacrificial system, laid out over Passover. And atonement is required for access to God, right? So there, there must be blood shed, right? There must be atonement. We have to be cleansed to come into God's presence. And if we want life with God, then we have to come into God's presence. So why then do we strive for our own self-righteousness? Right? Whose blood do we want to use? When we say, oh, I'll keep a promise, do we mean it'll be my blood? I don't think so. Right? If we really thought about it, we wouldn't say that. We have a hope, right? It, it, isn't that, it isn't that we could even shed our blood. The blood that was required on the, on the Passover was a spotless lamb. We're not spotless. 
not since Genesis 3. Even if we could shed our blood, it would not be sufficient. It would not atone. It would not grant us presence. But this message is a message of of Advent, and this message is a message of hope. There is a spotless lamb who has shed his blood, right? who has granted it to us, who has given us righteousness, has given us his blood as a once and for all sacrifice. We don't have to go to the tabernacle and hope the priest doesn't die when he goes in and takes our sin offering and makes a scapegoat and and hope it works out this year. There was a once and done sacrifice for us. The blood debt has been paid and we've been atoned for. And not only that, not only has the penalty for sin been paid for, but we've been given righteousness in his perfect life and Christ's perfect death. It's been granted, it's been shared with us. So we are free. This is our hope. We shouldn't heap on self-righteousness. Righteousness is something that we don't want to pay for, if you think about it. It's too expensive and we don't have the means. But what's been given freely is Christ's righteousness to us, his perfect righteousness. This is our hope. This is where we need to live, that it's been sufficiently paid for. We see at the death of Christ... The curtain rip and the Holy of Holies laid open. Access has been restored, right? It is not the cherubim. It is not the fire and the shaking anymore. Access has been laid open. We are, when we are in Christ, we have communion with God. We have the spirit of God in us. He is tabernacling with us and in us now. And that's all possible through Christ. Not anything that we could do, anything that we could work up, anything that we could make happen. We are Israel Israel, and we break our promise and we wonder and we grumble and God is faithful and he renews covenant with us over and over and over again and it does not depend on our righteousness, our, our faithful keeping of the covenant. God keeps it and then we get to we get to respond out of that, out of that joy. So I invite you in this Advent season to do these three things with me, that we trust, that we trust that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient and in our stead, that we rest, that we rest from the need to pretend and perform. We find our assurance in Christ. And then that we adore, that we come and adore Christ. We celebrate Christ for who he is and what he's done and what he will do. That we have a forever king that keeps the covenant forever. And he's so much better at saving us than we ever would be. Join me in prayer. God, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for providing a way, for paying the price, Lord, for being righteous, for being the spotless lamb and atoning for us in our stead. Help us rest in that truth. Help us adore you this season. Help us serve you this season, God. Help us love you, Lord, out of, a, out of rest, out of trust. Lord, help us increase our adoration. We pray these things in your name. Amen.